Neil Before Blog presents Neil Before Pod. Hello, and welcome to the Neil Before Pod interview segment. I'm your host, Craig, and I recently had the pleasure of chatting to actor Tanisha Collins, who plays Ms. Burns in the Netflix film Fatherhood, also starring Kevin Hart. We talk about the importance of perspective, growing self confidence, and so much more. Sit back, relax, and enjoy. I'm delighted to be joined on Neil Before Pod with Tanisha Collins. Welcome on. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. How are you doing today? I'm doing good. It's a very warm couple of days in Montreal. So we have that pre-summer weather. So everybody is in a much better mood than we were last month. <laughs> in Scotland, it's just raining and it has been for the past week or something. We've had very little dry weather. So great. It's supposed to be hitting summer here as well, but no, it's just going to rain. One day. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, summer in Scotland. It's my favorite day of the year. That's the joke. That's the same. Well, in Montreal, we have two seasons. We have winter and summer. There's really no spring or fall. We go from minus 40 Celsius to plus 40 very quickly. So, <laughs> so yeah, you kind of get it. <laughs> we'll just start talking a bit about you and your start in the industry. How did you get into acting and what led you to where you are now through your career? I started acting very young, actually. I started at eight years old in elementary school. One of our teachers, who was an ex-actor, created a theater group and allowed us to kind of take our favorite stories and fairy tales and rewrite them. So I got my stage debut as Santa Claus, (laughs) (laughs) which is a role that still haunts me because I almost broke the entire set during a production. But through that and through that experience and through the collaborative experience, I was hooked from then on. And I think I was about maybe nine and a half or 10 when I handed my parents the yellow pages and said, get me an agent. I probably heard it on Entertainment Tonight or something, some celebrity talking about an agent, but I just knew that that's what I needed. So I started auditioning at 10 years old, had one sister at the time who was very cute, but very shy and was not really at all into this part of the industry. And I think it's very hard when you're a parent having children And only one of them is into something so intensely. So it kind of became more of a hobby than something professional at the time. I took a little break in my teens just to be a teen. And when I was about 20 years old, I got back into the industry just because even though I had all these different experiences and education and and life, it stayed with me. And it was something that I knew that if I didn't do, I'd always regret. And so, yeah, so at about 20 years old, I just got back into the industry and through so many amazing, beautiful synchronicities and serendipitous moments, I aligned with the right people to get me on the right path. So through meeting one agent, she referred me to the most amazing acting coach I've ever met, Jacqueline McClintock, who was legendary in Canada, across Canada. And that helped me develop my craft to be able to then get ready for these roles that I now get to play. And now here we are. It's a 20 year long story. So it's hard to kind of summarize, but I got bit very, very young and I couldn't let it go. And even though I have a background in science and I've worked in different fields, I've never been able to escape it. It's not a hobby. It's not a passion. It's an obsession. It's like one of my driving forces. And I don't know if you've ever been obsessed with anything, but it's like, you go to sleep, you're thinking about it. You wake up and you're like, okay, what can I do now about that? And that's where I am with this. Whereas all of the other jobs or careers that I've tried, it was fun and I loved the challenge, but it's not the same thing. It's not something that I can see myself not just be happy, but be thrilled doing 
until the day I die. Did you find that taking time off as a team to just be a normal person, did you find that was a sort of necessary thing to do to ground yourself in a bit of reality before getting back to it? Or was it just something that sort of happened? A little bit of both. When I was younger, I can't say that I was doing it at the level that I am now. I was not a child actor, regularly a star of a show, but the thrill of auditioning and working was always in me. And it just happened that my agent at the time had closed her talent agency to open a casting agency. So she went from working with talent to working with producers and directors. And the people who were taking over her agency, I didn't like them. I met them and I really didn't enjoy the impression that I got from them. So I just took a step back and that was kind of a coincidence like that because I wasn't comfortable. And I didn't really, as a 16 year old pre-internet as it is now with all the resources that we have, I didn't know where to go and I didn't really know anybody else who was doing this or who wanted to do this at the level that I wanted to do it. So that break was kind of a half break because my agent at the time who opened a casting agency still reached out to me. So I still was working, but it was sporadic. And looking at the child actors that I work with now and the lives that they have, even looking at my life now, which is so busy and so focused on your craft, which is amazing as an adult, because like I said, I've had all these lives to kind of test and see what works for me and what I enjoy and what drives me. When you're that young, you don't really know who you are, what you want to do. Me at 16, me at 17 and 27 are completely different people. So I think that it allowed me to kind of, I guess, have that little taste of it, but still, yeah, be a, a regular kid and make mistakes and experience things with my friends and try different things, you know, try studying biology instead of studying theater, working in marketing instead of directly trying to move to LA. I don't know if those experiences really help ground me or not, because I feel like I'm surrounded by people in my family and in my friendship circle who constantly keep me grounded. And they're the most real, amazing people ever. So I think that even if I got to a very high level as a child, I feel like I'd probably kind of have a similar mentality because the people around me are just so amazing. But I think it allowed me to add more layers to myself and to truly learn who I am as a person so that when I'm going into these roles, I'm not just bringing this myopic view of what one person is or what thing is. I'm bringing all of the different lives that I've already had through my experiences and through the people that I've met. So it adds a lot more nuance and depth to the characters. Also, I don't feel like I've missed out on life. Everything that I chose acting over something, it was a conscious decision that I made and it wasn't out of obligation. Whereas I think that when you are operating at a very high level at a young age, you do have a choice at a certain extent, but if you're the star of a show, you can't just all of a sudden say, I don't want to go to set tomorrow, right? You can't decide that no matter what age you are. So it's a little bit different. So I think having that freedom to just choose to ride my bikes with my friends or go to the pool or spend hours at the library versus constantly knowing that I have to be up at 5am and go on set every day. I think that that's giving me a bigger appreciation for my life and the work that I have. And also a huge respect and kudos to the people who are parents of child actors and to the child actors, because I know how much strength and sacrifice it takes. And yeah, you hear all these horror stories about child actors, just once they get to a certain age, they just go nuts and it's kind of no fault of their own. It's just the way that the industry puts pressure on them or whatever. And so it sounds like you've managed to avoid that by just living and having your younger life. Absolutely. I think that at any stage in your career, no matter who you are, the biggest celebrity who seems like they're in full control of their career, there's so much that you're actually not in control of. 
right? And I think that as an adult, you're able to rationalize and separate and know, I don't have control of this because of this specific reason. These are the reasons why this has to happen at this time. But when you're a child or a teen, it's hard to separate that. So you just feel that while you're doing what you love after a while, look, I love it. It's a passion. It's an obsession, but it's also a job. Hmm. And I think that when you're eight, nine, 10, 16, having this intense full-time job, that's so rewarding, but also so full of sacrifices. I can see why child and teen actors end up feeling trapped just because you don't have control over anything. No matter if you're doing what you love, can't decide, hey, I want to go hang out with my friends because, oh, I have a shoot or I have an interview or I can't be seen at this place because it's not good for my image as to what they want to craft me as. There's so many factors. So I can see how that would definitely weigh on somebody's mental health. I just wanted to look back to what you said about playing Santa Claus and almost destroying the set. That's a story I really want to hear. How did you (laughs) almost destroy a set on your first time out? (laughs) So actually twice. I almost destroyed the set twice in that same production. (laughs) So at eight years old, I was like this big. And we did this hybrid. It was our Christmas play. And it was so when the seven dwarfs meets Santa and his elves. And we were very progressive because Santa and his elves was played by a girl. But of course, Santa is quite robust. And I was (laughs) like this big. So we had a lot of padding. And I have to give credit to the teachers at that school because they really made the most out of nothing. We had a sled that they found an old refrigerator box and totally paper mache the crap out of that to make it into this beautiful sled. Except that when you have extra padding that you're not used to, your buoyancy is a little off, you know? So instance one, which I actually did break the set, is as we're trekking through the snow, one of the elves, it was like a domino effect, an elf stumbled, which stumbled onto another elf, which stumbled onto me. And then it's somewhere on video where I just completely collapsed and broke the sled, which was embarrassment number one. And then in another showing of that same play, Santa, again, quite padded. You know, there's a scene, and I'm trying to remember because obviously I don't remember every part of the play, but there's a scene where I think a wicked witch comes in or something and terrifies the elves and the elves hide behind me. And one of these elves just was a little bit too violent in their push and just probably like a very small little push that just totally made me tip over. But this time it was the entire set on the stage that you just see like wobble. And I think everybody just held their breath waiting to see if it would stay or collapse. And thankfully when I think there was just a tear, but it didn't fully collapse. But yeah, I've definitely had my embarrassing moments. And that was one of them that I think that to this day, my parents still bring up. They're like, yeah, Santa broke the set. (laughs) I almost ruined Christmas. (laughs) I suppose it breaks the ice a little bit, gets you into the fact that you will mess up occasionally early doors and just prepares you for that eventuality throughout your career. So good to get that out of the way early. Exactly. I mean, it's one of those things where I think in life, it's good to know that mistakes are going to happen. You know, you're going to make mistakes. You're going to make the wrong decision. You're going to fall either metaphorically or literally. And you'll always get back up. Nobody laughed me off the stage. I did get laughter. Um, but All the laughter was more just like, oh, these little kids. It's like, you know, you see little kids doing this. And then, yeah, of course, something's going to happen. Nothing's going to be perfect. We're eight years old, you know? But yeah, I think starting off with that embarrassment and also dressed as Santa, full on beard and everything kind of, I feel, takes away the ego when you're a little kid. And most little girls, like I wanted to be the princess and it's no way well, you get to be Santa, which is one of the stars. But I was like, no, I want to be the princess. 
then you do it and you're like, okay, well, that was actually the first male character that I played. And it wasn't the last, but it was the first male character. So I'm kind of proud of it. Yeah, we'll get on to one of your male characters later on. But yeah, one thing I wanted to ask about Real Detective, because in the blurb I got sent, there was a quote from you about how passionate you were about being in Real Detective and being part of that story and telling that story. So can you just talk a bit about what that experience was like and how you connected to it? There were a lot of factors as to why it was special for me. I'm going to be fully vulnerable here. I had gained weight. And in this industry, that's often frowned upon. I had gained weight. I was feeling pretty crappy about myself. But thankfully, my acting coach that I had mentioned, Jacqueline McClintock, told all of her students, look, whether you're beautiful or you don't think you're attractive, whether you're overweight, too skinny, whatever the reason is, that will be the reason why they first cast you. That will be kind of what you play over and over again. You'll play the pretty girl, you'll play the geek, you'll play the nerd. But it's your responsibility as a performer to learn all of your layers and to deepen your performance, to be prepared to play something different than what your typecast has. So because of that, I worked a lot on vulnerability and I'm working on drama and reversing that conditioning when you're little to stop being a crybaby. When you're little, kids are crying. It's like, okay, time to toughen up and just move forward. And then you're unconditioning that because you're learning to be able to embrace that. So that was a point when I wasn't feeling physically confident about myself and going in for this role, which I'd been training for like a decade to be able to play drama, but I was kind of always playing superficial characters. I think my first professional TV production, my character was Hot Campus Girl number two. (laughs) And and I kind of prepared myself to, okay, like you're going to have this kind of gossip girl CW type career where you're just kind of playing what you look. And then going into this character where I felt completely not confident with the way I looked, but fully confident that I could bring the depth that this character needed because it's an anthology series based on true stories. And it's based on, there's a murder. This character, she is grieving. She is deceiving. She is confused. She's protecting people and she's pregnant. So there's all of these layers that I think that five years before I would have been so daunted to play, but I was just like, effing bring it on, let's go. And I remember going into the audition and bawling my eyes out in the audition in the scene And at the end of the take, my question wasn't, I thought it was so silly, but my question wasn't, how was that? Which you should never really ask, but it was, do I look okay? Because I was concerned that my mascara was running and the casting director was just like, who gives a crap what you look like? That was amazing. Just let's do it again. And it was just so freeing to know that I didn't book something based on what I looked like. Or I'm very much known for my bubbliness. I always say I'm like, I'm the cheerleading nerd. I'm always go, go, go. I'm a lifelong cheerleader. But I was booked for something completely apart from what I'm typically known for, which is this very enthusiastic, bubbly cheerleader. This character was not that. So first of all, there was that. I played opposite these two incredible actors, Louis Ferreira and Sergio Dezio. Lou, if you've ever watched Breaking Bad, he's in Breaking Bad, he plays Declan. And they're just, they're both these legendary Canadian actors. So I got to also hold my own opposite these people. But on top of that, there's the layer of the fact that it's a real story. And throughout this story, we don't really know until the end if my character is a villain or not. But I feel, and I kept reminding myself of this throughout the shoot, is that regardless of my opinion of what the character is and what she's done, this is a real person. And there's people out there who have loved her and continue to love her. So while there's pressure to play this character as honestly and truthfully to honor this person, it's also just for me, we all do bad things. If I did something catastrophically horrible, I think that it's more interesting 
to watch the human versus the villain in something like this. It's not a superhero story. It's a true story. So I think that for me as a viewer, I like being able to look at the psychology and be like, okay, this is a real person and this is what happened and try to understand why. So that was one of the reasons why it was rewarding. I think it's the fact that it was one of the first true dramatic roles that I booked that allowed me to truly showcase what I can do as a performer. It had nothing to do with the way I looked and that it was a true story to the point that the real people from this story, the children of these detectives, they reached out to a bunch of us on Instagram to thank us. The person who I'm portraying was not a good person in the story of this of their father, but they still thanked me for being able to be part of their story and telling the story as honestly as possible, which was so humbling, but also the reminder of the impact of what you're working on. That kind of feedback must have been really nice to get. It's that kind of, wow, I've really made that impact. And it sounds like it came along at the right time in your life as well, that role in particular. From what you've said, it seems that it just answered a need, I guess, to change something with yourself from the sounds of things or change what you've been doing and what you've been looking at. A hundred percent. It shifted my mentality about the industry, the way that they look at you. And in my mind, it was just like, you know what, I am who I am at whatever weight, whether I gain 30 pounds or lose 30 pounds, I can book at every weight. That was kind of like my reassurance for that. And also just my reminder that every different kind of person has a place in this industry. It might be more challenging sometimes, but I'd rather be myself and create a place for myself than try to be what they're looking for and trying to squeeze myself in because that's not satisfying for me. And also I think that it kind of just reaffirmed for me that, hey, you know what, like the stuff that you've been working on, it's not just you and, you know, your peers, the best actors I know are my peers and we love each other and we support each other. It's not just the people who love and support you who think that you actually have a talent in this genre, but other people do as well. So it kind of reaffirmed that for me and gave me a huge needed confidence boost that when I went to the next one, I was like, yeah, I got this. I know I can get this. Give me a second. Let me get down to it. You know? That sounds great. Did it change the kind of roles that you were putting yourself forward for after doing that? Did you rethink what you were going to throw yourself at as opposed to what you'd done before? Absolutely. I mean, I love doing all kinds of genre. Everything that I've done, I've loved for different reasons because it excites a different part of me. I always say that I feel like there's a little bit of a magic that you feel when you're doing what you love. And I feel it in every single genre that I've done. But if I had to choose just one type of project to work on, it would definitely drama because I am generally a very happy person, but I feel like it helps me stay connected to my emotions because I think that it's good to be positive and to be happy, but nobody's happy all the time. And it's easy to go towards that toxic end because you just want to portray yourself as so happy. So I think it's that reminder to me to stay in tune with my own emotions because as a performer, you're performing and you're playing somebody else, but you're bringing your truth to it, right? So like I always say, I wear my heart on my sleeve. So I'm incredibly happy, but I also get like crazy road rage because, <laughs> because those emotions just hop out at me. But the types of roles that I've started going out for, first of all, that was the first time that I was the female lead in something so big. So it brought some attention to me, but then I feel like the casting directors that I've been working with started trusting me with things that maybe were a little bit outside of what the production asked for, you know, if they wanted someone a little bit older and they wanted to kind of give production different options, they'd be like, Hey, well, Tanisha can do it. 
because they're willing to take a chance on you. So it definitely opened up things for me like that. And it opened up more the kinds of projects I want to work on and create. So there was a period where I was doing a lot of drama, but at the same time, I would never say no to comedy because I think that especially as a woman, you don't get to do comedy that often. When you do, you're usually what they call the straight man. You're usually the more serious person opposite the really funny guy. So I think it fueled what I want to do. And if I had to only pick one type, I would only do drama. But the beauty of this industry is you don't have to only pick one type. And I think that I've had the advantage somewhat in the middle of my career to be able to do all these different types of projects that I don't feel like I'm specifically known for just one thing. So I I don't worry about the risk of being pigeonholed as just the girl who can cry or the one who can be silly and make you laugh. Because there are people who do get pigeonholed because that's all they end up doing over and over again. I don't have that fear. So I think that It shifted things, but not necessarily just towards drama. It just shifted things overall because I think it just opened up new layers to me. And you mentioned doing a bit of genre stuff. So a big genre thing you've been in is Future Man, where you play Kenneth. I haven't seen very much of the show. I've seen a couple of episodes, so I'm aware of the concept. Just what I hear you talk about, about what it's like being in that. It's this kind of virtual world type situation. It just, it's very weird and out there. So it'd be interesting to hear your take on what you think of that show and being a part of that. So first of all, I have to say, I'm only in the final season of Future Man. I'm in a very small portion of this show. It is one of the best shows out there. It is so cleverly written. I had never heard of this show before I was auditioning for it. And I was in the middle of another shoot. And obviously, because the show's already been on the air, I looked into it. So I decided to watch one episode. And the premise of the show is that there's this guy who's played by Josh Hutcherson, whose character is Josh Futterman, and he's a gamer. His character's last name, because his last name is Futterman, his character's name is Future Man. And he plays this notorious video game that nobody can beat. Nobody can ever beat. And then finally, he finds a way to beat the game. And in that moment, the characters from the game appear in front of him. They're like, Future Man, you are our last hope. They basically planted the game from the future and the past to find the savior for humankind in the future. And they expect him to be this amazing warrior. And he's the janitor of a pharmaceutical company. And he lives still at home with his parents. And he's kind of a little bit of a goof. And they're really disappointed. And it's just so cleverly written. They make fun of every single person in the show, including themselves. And it's a time bending show. So they go back in time, they go into the future. And in season three, it's set in 3419, so way in the future, when people aren't typically born, they're created in a lab completely. Men have women's names. It's a Seth Rogen produced show, and he's in the final season. He plays Susan, <laughs> and women have men's names. So it's completely reversed. Susan, so Seth Rogen's character is married to a robot. He has a robot baby, and you watch these characters try to resolve this, I mean, I don't want to give too much, so I really think you should watch it. But right now, because of all the time jumping that they've done back and forth over the first two seasons, time is a complete mess. And things are overlapping. You have the indigenous people in Canada being met with Japanese warriors from different dynasties. It's it's just completely overlapping. And they're trying to solve that while also fighting this villain. Um, all I knew about the show was that it was a show set in the future where men have women's name, women have men's names and people marry robots. So I remember (laughs) reading the description and I was like, this sounds like such a stupid show, but that it would be so much fun to be on because of the stunts and the special effects. 
And then I watched an episode. And my goal was just to see where my character fit in the season or in the story. And I couldn't figure that out because it's a totally different timeline. But also I was just like, this is incredible. And instead of sleeping the eight hours that I had to sleep before having to go on set the next day, I binged watch four episodes. And by the time between my first audition to my callback four days later, I had watched the entire first two seasons. They're like half hour episodes. They're very easy to digest, but still I was shooting. And I remember my agent called me because we were trying to figure out a time for the callback. And my exact words were, I don't care if I have to walk by in the background, I need to be on this show. Because it was just so clever. So to be a part of it to me was such an honor. An entire storyline got cut, I guess, just because it didn't fit in the editing that I hope comes out later for like extra features for the fans because it's so well done. It's so funny. It's funny. It's raunchy, just raunchy enough. It brings nostalgia. Season one has a very back to, they all have like different vibes. Let's go back to the future vibe. There's vibes from all these nostalgic shows. It was really, really cool. And I got to pick my own name on the show. And the first name that the readers had suggested was my father's name, Kenneth. So I was just like, yeah, let's do that. Cause he'd love that. You know, it's really, really well done. I have to say, and that's not because I'm on the show, because like I said, I'm a small fraction of the show. It's just really well done. And I think that it could have gone on much longer but it's one of those shows that they got canceled and then they got renewed and moved to a different studio and they had a very niche fan base. But then because they got canceled, they got all these extra fans. And now I feel that it's one of those shows, you know, kind of like when you look at Arrested Development that got canceled because they didn't have enough viewers. And then all of a sudden all the viewers came. I think that it's a show that will get its time and it already has a little bit of a cult following, but I think that it's going to definitely get its rise in the sci-fi world because um, it's so effing clever. But don't watch it with kids because it's not kid appropriate at all. <laughs> <laughs> well, you've definitely sold it to me. I think I've seen two episodes, something like that. But there's always so much to watch. I'm yeah. sure you can understand it's just content saturation. All my shows are so long. My <laughs> Netflix queue, my Amazon Prime queue. I'm like, okay, absolutely. <laughs> I have to work. I have to sleep. I have to do this. But I also have to watch yeah. all of the TV in the world somehow. <laughs> I sacrifice sleep sometimes. Like I just finally watched Breaking Bad for the first time. And I know I'm very late, but I watched it in like two weeks. And I was just like, okay, like I'll cut my sleep in half because I need to know what happens next. Do you have a preference when you're watching things or were you just taking a bit of everything? It depends. Because if it's something like Breaking Bad or right now, like I'm obsessed with Handmaid's Tale. Also, it's my dream show. It's filmed in Canada. I'm like, I need to be on the show. But dramas like that, I feel I need my full attention. And then oftentimes I'll rewind because I want to know what did they say, what happens, because I don't want to miss anything. Whereas sometimes certain comedies, you can watch and not have to be fully alert while you're watching. You could just watch it and enjoy it. So it depends on my mood. If I'm tired, I won't get into a drama because I know that my brain just isn't clued in enough to fully connect all the dots. And then I'll be disappointed in myself when I miss a little Easter egg from the creators that led to a spoiler later or something. Whereas when I'm just like, yeah, I've got the time and I've got the energy, even if it's three o'clock in the morning, I'll be like, yeah, let's put on an episode of something really deep and get into it. And I'll just be fully focused on it. And you mentioned about you want to be on Handmaid's Tale. Is there any other shows that are filming nearby at the moment that you really are trying to get on or want to be on or you would love to just visit for a day? Handmaid's Tale is 100%. It's definitely on my list. There's also a show, it's a Canadian show called The Transplant that's filmed in Montreal, it's set in Toronto. And it's airing in the States as well on NBC. And it's the story of a Syrian refugee who's a doctor in Syria who comes to Canada 
but doesn't have any of his papers because the university is there. He has no access to his transcripts or anything. And through a series of events, he ends up becoming one of the doctors in this hospital, even though he doesn't have his certification, they allow him to be part of the show. And I've auditioned for the show several times. They're shooting season two right now. Every character that I've auditioned for, usually a show, you know, you read certain characters like, oh, this is cool. That's cool. Every single character is a character that I know that any actor would dream of playing. Every single one of their guest stars are so complex, so layered, and the stories are so interesting. It's not a Grey's Anatomy. It's a very real, raw, gritty show, and it's beautifully done. And they just won the equivalent of, I guess, the Emmys. They won the Canadian Screen Awards. They won a bunch of awards this week or last week because of it. And it's, it's so well done. It's such a great cast, great writing team. The creators are amazing as well, but it's a show that I am dying for one of these 15 auditions I've done to finally come through. (laughs) (laughs) Good luck with it. Hopefully you'll get that call and you'll get to live your dream of being a part of it. Right. (laughs) One thing that you're in that I couldn't find a lot of information about other than the fact that it exists, Dungeons and Distancing. I think the name's really cool. So what is that? (laughs) Dungeons and Distancing was born out of the pandemic. The two creators, Annie Yao and Nikki Haggart, Basically, they are D&D players. I've never played, but I think I'm the only one involved who's never played. But I know a lot of people who do play. And basically, it's about a ragtag group of friends who shift their game to Zoom. So basically, you're watching a live D&D play, but you're also seeing the dynamics between each character. I play Casey, who's the Dungeon Master, which was such a gift to play because as the Dungeon Master, you drive the story but you also get to do all these different characters. So I got to play with my voices and, you know, be ogres and be a little squeaky weasel and do all these different things and just be silly in the most fun way possible and learn so much because the other actors and the creators are avid players. There's things that I really didn't know. So it's a very humbling thing when you walk into something and you're like, I have no idea what I'm doing. I need all of your guidance. And they were great. And now I'm eager to play a game. But we just dropped the final episode of the season the other day. I think it was Friday. They're very short episodes. They're under 10 minute episodes. You can watch the entire season in a little bit over an hour. It's fun. It's silly. It's well written. You know, you see the Instagrammer playing with the corporate guy who's got a little bit of a rage issue and the new guy, one of the characters is a cousin who's going through a little bit of a depression because of the pandemic and he invites him to the game and he's actually the new guy in the group. And to see how the dynamic shifts and what adventures they get to in the game, but also outside of the game and the drama that ensues, it was so much fun. It was so, so much fun. And it was something that also was kind of interesting because the first time that you actually get to film And it's in my bedroom. It's in our own homes. And we filmed it between Montreal and Toronto. It was really, really great experience. And now they're submitting it to festivals, but it's available to view. So you don't have to be at a festival to see it. What was it like transitioning to acting over Zoom as opposed to acting on set? What's getting used to that like? It's weird. I mean, look, look, when you're on set, and I think you really take it for granted, you have hundreds of amazing professionals around you whose job it is to make you look your best and whose job it is to make you sound your best and to make everything look great. You have lighting technicians, you have sound technicians, you have hair, you have makeup, you have people who do the props and who stage the room and you have a director who will tell you how to change your angles. You're doing this all on your own, except for the directing, you're doing everything on your own. I was 
the sound person. I was the lighting person. I did all of that. So it gave me, and I already have an appreciation, but it gave me an added appreciation for that. It's also very different because they have this thing called, they, they say, don't act from the neck, neck up, neck up acting, which is basically just very superficial, being a talking head, no emotion. And you're literally acting from the neck up on Zoom, even though you're not. So it's different because you're used to, on a TV set, any scene that you watch has not just been performed from one angle 10 times, but it's been performed from four different angles. You have your close-up, you have your wide shot, you have the reverse, you have all these different shots. Whereas when we filmed it, and they were very clever, we did our close-ups. Everybody would do their entire episode with just your close-up. And then we redo the entire episode after everybody did their close-ups with all of the takes and all of the direction together. So you have a little bit of both and you have everybody's reactions to each other. I think it was a very creative way to create during the pandemic. It was an exercise for me to just be more still because you're <laughs> on camera, you have to be still in general. But when all you're seeing is me from the shoulder up, I really have to be aware of when I'm out of camera and when it's okay to be out of camera. It's a lot more to think about, but I think it, in the end, it'll probably really help me in front of the camera, to be honest. And the only complication you can really get is internet issues <laughs> yeah. in filming like that. Absolutely. And like, I've had those and I've learned workarounds around it and I've learned <laughs> how to soundproof a bedroom. And <laughs> <laughs> Lessons to be learned everywhere, I guess. Exactly. <laughs> Still, I didn't know I needed to have <laughs> how yeah. to soundproof a bedroom. <laughs> <laughs> so your next upcoming project, or big upcoming project, Fatherhood, which is a Netflix movie starring Kevin Hart. So um, what was the, the process of getting into that like? And what was it like being around that? I'm guessing it was a COVID filmed thing. So adjusting to those restrictions and changes in how you do things, all of that. Actually, it's not. Actually, we filmed the summer 2019 and COVID delayed the release. So we filmed it from June to August, 2019. So we had no COVID restrictions. It was amazing. It's very different than shooting now. And it was a very interesting process. So I auditioned for two different characters in the film and Paul White, who's the director, he also co-wrote with his brother, was nominated for an Oscar for About a Boy, which to me is one of my favorite films ever with Hugh Grant. So at the callback was really fun because when you get an audition, you really just get a script and a quick little blurb about who the character is. And the rest is kind of up to you. And you bring your own interpretation. Sometimes it's totally off. Sometimes it's totally what the creators expected. Sometimes it's what they expected and then they realize they don't want it, right? So you never really know when you go in what's going to happen. You just go in with your own ideas and then be prepared to do something completely different. And at my initial audition, I did it a certain way. I got some direction, tried a couple of different ways. But then at my callback with the director in the room, I think that every scene we tried like seven different ways. So there were seven different types of ways that this character could be played and they were all fun and they were all interesting. It's just a matter of what's the best way to do it. And a few weeks pass, that felt like an eternity. And I got the call that I had booked the role right before I was going on a flight to Miami and I was just so excited because obviously it's a Kevin Hart production. And I had looked up the story in the meantime, and it's based on a true story. It's based on the story of Matt Loughlin, who him and his high school sweetheart, they're in LA, they're pregnant, they're having a baby. They have a blog to keep their family up to date with the pregnancy because their family's in Minnesota. And then under 48 hours after delivering, his wife dies of a pulmonary embolism. And he's left being the sole parent 
not the parental one, being the sole parent trying to raise this baby girl. And his blog for his family quickly kind of shifts to being a blog of grief and then a blog of him struggling to raise his daughter and it gets more attention. And then eventually he creates a memoir, which becomes a New York Times bestselling book called Two Kisses for Maddie, which is what the movie is based on. So I had known about the story in advance, but I didn't read the script. And I remember I got the script. I was on my flight back to Montreal to the next morning, go to my fitting to start getting fitted for this costume. And I'm reading the script in the airport bar, a glass of wine, a little bit of fries, reading the script and under 10 pages in burst out in tears in the airport bar, like ugly crying, like just bawling my eyes out. It was just so beautifully written. And that's never happened to me before. The only time I've had that visceral response to a script was actually Future Men when I laughed out loud every script. And I got my wine for free (laughs) because I was crying. There's an upside then. (laughs) Yeah, it was an upside. And that just kind of like made me so much more excited to get to work on this project. And when I got on set, I knew my lines, I knew what we were shooting. But even to be truthful to the story and reading the script, there were so many different ways that I could play this character. And like, I had my own ideas, I had my own interpretation. But the first question I asked before shooting was, Paul, what's your intention with this? How do you want Ms. Burns to, how do you want her relationship to be? Because even to be truthful, there were so many different ways. And his answer, which was to me the most freeing answer was, do what feels right and we'll adjust. And that was kind of the note throughout the entire movie. And we never really adjusted. So this movie is me just doing what feels right in those moments which was such an incredible experience with a legendary writer and director, him having full trust in me to bring what I feel is right to the scene versus what his vision was. And I think it was probably a little bit different than two months before what they envisioned. But even there were moments where, let's say I'm scripted to be in the scene, but I actually don't have anything to say. I'm just in the scene or in an office or something and other people are talking and either Paul or Kevin would be like, well, she should be saying something. My daughter's been in the school for a year. She should be saying something. And on any other set, you'd expect the director to come in and be like, okay, how about you say this? Or you say that, or you guys talk about this. And instead he'd just be like, say what you feel needs to be said in the moment. Say what you feel feels right and we'll adjust. And it was just so amazing because then you're creating, you're giving your imprint on this project. And Melody Heard, who plays Maddie, who is the most amazing little girl I've ever met. She's also one of the stars of Them on Amazon Prime right now. And this is her first feature film. So the first thing I did was I introduced myself to her and her mother because all of my scenes are with Melody. And we very quickly formed this amazing bond. And we would dance, we had a handshake, we teach each other choreography, things like that. She's a kid and I'm a kid on the inside. It was so much fun. But what was cool is that I don't know if you know the dance, the floss that all the kids were doing. I still can't do it two years later. She taught me every day. But Paul would watch us dance together. And I remember at one point he looked at me and he was like, can you teach that to Kevin? So at the end of the trailer, you see they're doing the floss together. And that was directly from me. So it's cool to see my impact on other parts of the project, even the scenes that I'm not in. So it's so amazing to see. And I think because it's also a true story and I'm connected to the real Matt Loglin and I know where he is now and and how they're faring. It's such a beautiful, heartwarming story that will break your heart, but will also give you hope. And I think it's 
also very special because Matt's white. Matt's not a black man. It's not a black story being told by a black man. It's this amazing guy who just happens to be white and he's has Kevin Hart telling the story. So it gives another layer because a lot of people are looking at it as not just showing a single father, which we don't often see, but showing positive black fatherhood as well, which is a message that not a lot of people get to see either. So it's Definitely a very special project, two years in the making, and I'm counting down the days until it drops on Netflix. Want to watch out for then? I'll definitely check it out when it appears. You've sold it to me. So you've sold <laughs> Future Man and this, so well done. You're very good at selling so your own projects. About it. Like, I'm the person who is like, look, I can't say that every project that I've been in has been this remarkable, groundbreaking thing that has stayed with me forever. There are projects that you do that are fun to do, and then you're like, oh, that was cute. Or when you see the final product, you're just like, that's not what I thought it was going to be. And it's a little disappointing, but these just happened to be projects that were so amazing and so meaningful and so special to me. And I actually shot Future Man and Fatherhood in tandem. So it was a cool juxtaposition to go from present day Catholic school teacher in ankle length skirts to being this, I looked like the Night's Watch and Future Man, you know, we're in 3419. I'm this like cerebral scientist. It's a cool playing two different characters at the same time. Just got to make sure you know which one you're walking into. Otherwise, could be confusing for a lot of people. (laughs) So what's next for you? I saw that you're looking to create something, doing a bit of writing and producing and stuff. So what is that project and what other projects have you got coming up that you can talk about? There'll probably be some that you can, I would imagine. Yeah, I'd say that most of the things that I have, I can't really talk about yet. They're still in the early stages, but I'm happy to talk about my writing. So right now I am working on a series. I've created a series and it stems from one of my best friends who won the American Bachelor. She was on it. She got engaged and us being this tight, I became Bachelor adjacent. Not only am I hearing about her experiences and being there for her experiences, but then I'm having my own slew of experiences as well. And she was on it four years ago. And over the last four years, we've had some amazing experiences. We've had some really crappy experiences. We've had some hilarious experiences. And to this day, the franchise has yet to have a Black winner. And at first I saw it as kind of a comedic. And what would happen if her experiences if I experienced them instead, just first of all, as individuals, my reaction would be totally different for a lot of things, but also with the nuances of culture and race, how would that be received? And I was working on it as a comedy and I wrote a couple of episodes. I thought it was funny, but it just, it wasn't exciting to me. And other people who read it were like, it's funny, but I wasn't excited to keep doing it. And one night, because I'm bachelor adjacent, we were at an event and I got to know two guys who were on the other end. They were the guys on the bachelorette, on the Canadian bachelorette and hearing their stories. Because when you think of reality TV, you think of, you know, the Kardashians, you think of superficiality, but this was a raw, honest, truthful conversation uh, and them bearing their hearts. And I was just like, I, as an insider kind of, I'm witness to this other side of what comes out of these shows and how it affects you, not just your life, but your friends and family. But most people aren't really aware of that. And there's no show that really exists. And that night I went home and I drafted a pilot and I shifted it completely to a dramatic comedy instead. And that's when I got excited. You know, just like in life, there's antics, there's humor, 
but it's rooted in truth versus rooted in hyperbole. So I, I started working on it. Netflix had a virtual pitch day for Canadians. So they requested pitches across Canada in different verticals. And my project was actually shortlisted by Netflix out of 10,000 submissions. It was like part of that under 1% of people who got to present to an executive at Netflix. Unfortunately, they said no. But that happens in the industry. That happens in writing. I feel like you probably get more no's in writing than you do in acting. <laughs> so now I'm in the process of readapting it for some other networks that will hopefully get it off the ground. Like I'm creating it with myself as the lead in mind. But at the same time, depending on what it gets made, maybe I won't be able to do it. I just think that it's a story that needs to be told. So there's definitely that. And I'm working on a few other projects that I'm working on that are just once again, stories that either I feel need to be told or projects for people that I feel need to be seen in a different light. Yeah, that definitely sounds interesting, sort of shining a light on a different side of something that people are so familiar with. I'm always interested in that. It's the, what about that person in the background? What is their story as opposed to the thing that you're seeing? So that does sound really interesting. Hopefully you'll gain the necessary traction and we'll get to see it one day. Thank you. Last question. It's a bit of a fun one. This is a nerdy podcast. So I always ask people, if you could have any superpower, what would it be and why? Oh my God. Okay. I think, oh, that's a tough one. (laughs) I'm not sure if it would be time travel or mind reading. I feel like I was always that kid who was probably like, why, but why, but why? Like, I always want to know why in the sense of why do people do certain things? Why do people think certain way? I'll engage in a conversation with someone who has a completely different opinion of mine, not to convince them, but to understand where it's coming from. So I feel like the power of mind reading will help me understand why people do things in a way that maybe they don't even understand. So I could be the psychology superhero where it's like fighting crime because I hear their thoughts and I know what's happening in advance. That's probably more nerdy than geeky because I just want to know everything. Geeky would definitely be time travel. I watched Timeless, which is a show where they have time machine where they go back in time and they're trying to stop things from happening in the future. But I think it would be cool to transplant yourself at any point in time, especially in historic moments, to be like, I want to stop this from happening before it's there's a meteor going to hit Earth in 10 years, but I know it's because Craig didn't put out his cigarette or something like that. And that created a chain of events. And I want to be able to go back in time and fight Craig to be able to to make it stop. But also I think it'd be really cool to be like, I want to go back to this specific time and be like, did that really happen the way that it actually happened? Because I don't know about you, but I, I have experiences where five years later, I tell the story again and I'm like, did that actually happen that way? Or did it just evolve over time? I'd love to be able to go, I don't know, to like any time, any historic time and just be that person and watch and be like, you did it wrong. <laughs> you could go and see concerts that were historically relevant and just be in the crowd. You can do that too. Be in the crowd? Are you talking about? I'll pick up a triangle. Ding, ding, <laughs> I'll be in the background. I'll be that person in every photo. Just depending on the time, I'll be posted every photo. I'll be that face. Like, you know, they find faces of people from like 200 years ago. Or maybe not two, but like 100 years ago. They'll find a picture and be like, oh, this looks like Nick Cage. You know, or this looks like the celebrity. And they'll just be like, wow, this person looks like Tanisha Collins. The first photography ever. But I look at her now and it's like, yeah, it's me. But I won't say anything. It'll be my little secret. There'll be like little mm. Easter eggs while I'm fighting crime. As I'm talking, I'm like, oh, it'll be Easter eggs. But I feel like I'm kind of on the line of becoming a villain the way that I'm talking right now. 
The way that I'm talking, I feel like I'd kind of be an inadvertent villain in the end. Well, it's not for me to decide how you use your power. That's for you to decide. <laughs> I hope I'd use it for good, but I feel like I'd try to use it for good and mischief. And that mischief would very much create a butterfly effect that would just turn me into this super villain living on top of a mountain. <laughs> <laughs> there are worse things to be, I suppose. If you're going to be a super villain, go for the, the ostentatious hideout. Go for that. Absolutely. I mean, I think that a supervillain would be really fun to play. Definitely. Like, people would not expect that for me. I'd probably be like a weirdo supervillain. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's plenty of CW superhero shows just exactly. tell you want to be a villain and see what happens. That's a cool power. Cool description, justification for your power as well. I always <laughs> like hearing these. These little reasons people want these powers. It's a good insight into people, I think. Oh, gosh. <laughs> <laughs> Not in a bad way. Just it's, it's good to see how people think about these things. <laughs> Thank you very much for coming on the podcast and talking so frankly about everything. And good luck with your writing. Good luck with fatherhood on Netflix. Good luck with any project that you're putting yourself forward to. I really do hope that you get everything that you want out of your career and continue to go from strength to strength. I really hope for the best for you. Oh, thank you so much, Craig. That's so sweet. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's been an honor. So thank you for having That's me. My pleasure. It's been great talking to you. It's been, it's been excellent. So thank you very much. That was my chat with Tanisha Collins. I'd like to once again... That was my chat with Tanisha Collins. I'd like to once again wish her all the best with her future projects. I really do hope she succeeds in everything that she's working on. If you like what you heard, then don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or any major podcasting app. Apple users, please leave us a star rating and a review. If you want to discuss this interview or anything else, then you can find us on Facebook and Twitter under Neil Before Blog, or leave a comment on neilbeforeblog.co.uk. As always, I hope you'll join us next time on Neil Before Pod.